0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, is the dark cloud hype or real? We'll give you the details, using DNS tunneling for remote command and control, and the big problem with one-day exploits. Plus, your great questions, our answers, a breaking news roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 268 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on May 26, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream, it's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. It's Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. How's it going? Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. So uh, we have a little bit of housekeeping I think we should take take care of right now, because it's on the tip of our minds... And if we wait till later in the show, we will forget. And that is just a little bit of a heads up. We will be doing a double recording of the TechSnap program next week. And that's always our call to you to please send in lots of emails. Because right now, inbox zero. It's a disaster. It is horrible. not really totally zero. Inbox zero for us is still like there's some emails in there, but it's real close, guys. It's real close. And we don't we have like we have like not enough for next week, so I'm giving you the warning now. Send in your questions if you want to answer on the show. Next week it's gonna happen when we record two episodes. But Alan, where the heck are you gonna be? Why are we recording a double next week?
1: Uh because BSD can starts on <laughs> uh <laughs> was it uh June eighth. BSD can I can't believe
0: we're there already. Uh, BSD can twenty sixteen. Check it out in Ottawa, Canada. Boy, that's you don't have to go far do you. <laughs> it's that's, it would still be a six hour drive. Yeah, but that's not bad only for one Canada. Hour <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and uh, there is uh, of course a whole bunch going on, including Alan's talk. Yep. Uh, which if you're going to make it, you could say hi to Alan, say hi to Mr. Is uh, anyone else, Chris, going to be there, I assume, yep. right? Uh, yeah. Chris will be there and,
1: you know, every other BSD yeah. person that I can think of.
0: Yeah, so uh, also, almost
1: everybody will be there. Be also good.
0: a double of BSD Now next week, too. Now, the way yes. that works for those of you who watch after the fact is they just come out at the regular time. You don't have to change yes. anything in your routine. We just release them as our awesome slightly early. Possibly slightly early. It's just part of our normal release process. But if yes. you do like to hang out live, jblive.tv will be starting at 11 a.m. Pacific next week for TechSnap, which roughly – 2 p.m. Eastern, which is 1800 UGC. Depending on where you experience the space-time continuum.
1: So sure. with uh, all of that – BSD Now, which will also – it will probably just start one hour early. Which is on Wednesdays over JB Live. Right. Sorry. That will be one hour earlier than our new temporary kind of – testing earlier times so wow. show, at, so you guys are show two start two like, hours early like at
0: 9 a.m pacific time is that what you're gonna do next week that's, yeah whoo. as somebody who's oh done a few God. shows at 9 a.m that's early <laughs> for doing a show that's early yeah, but, but for us it's new. yeah yeah that's true one <laughs> day, uh,
1: yeah. we used to start at two we're looking at switching to one because chris uh has more responsibilities business. and has uh um most of those people on the west coast so this way we can be done the show by the time they're ready to do work yeah that makes sense
0: um and of course the calendar page always has all that updated for you as fast as we can so let's start with our first news story this week i like this one because once you got your patches installed you get everything up to date you manage your security infrastructure make sure you got your windows update services turned on you're good to go no more problems right on yeah
1: uh the problem is not everybody actually does that <laughs> okay that's an that old motto here on this show i'm kicking a dead horse but tell me about yeah. this next story Uh, So, APT, or Advanced Persistent Threat Groups, are apparently still having great success by exploiting Microsoft Office flaws that were patched more than six months ago. See, now,
0: okay, I know I said I wasn't going to kick this horse, but how many times has this show said patch your ass? We've even put Mm -hmm. it on a shirt. (laughs) What's what's it going to
1: take, Alan? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, So, yeah, a Microsoft Office ability which is patched more than six months ago, continues to be a valuable tool for uh, APT gangs operating primarily in Southeast Asia and the Far East. Uh, CVE 2015-2545 is a vulnerability discovered in 2015 and corrected with Microsoft's update MS-15-099. The vulnerability affects Microsoft Office versions 2007 Service Pack 3, 2010 Service Pack 2, 2013 Service Pack 1, and 2013 RT Service Pack 1. So... You know, the fact that there are still people using Office 2007 is probably also part of it. Now, I understand why people don't want to switch from the version mm-hmm. of Office, and that's why Microsoft offers the patches. But it's no good if you don't install them. Hmm, yeah, uh, well, let me ask you an off-the-wall question. Sure. <clears throat> that reminds me, I need to go cancel my subscription for Microsoft Office because I'm done writing my books and don't need it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I wonder it- – Could
0: this is this possible? The uh, fallout of a policy that Microsoft instituted a long time ago—that if you don't have a legitimate and active, genuine copy of Windows, that you don't get patches and updates—and perhaps piracy is more rampant in these areas, and therefore they're running unactivated,
1: unlegitimate copies of Windows. Well, the other thing that might be part of it is by default, Microsoft update only or Windows update only installs updates for Windows. Yeah, sure, right. You right, have yeah. to enable an extra setting to turn it into Microsoft Update, Microsoft also update, update Office. Which looks identical to the old version. <laughs> well, it's the same thing. It's just, yeah, if you enable an extra option, it updates more stuff. But, you know, maybe that's not on but it falls in. maybe this, yeah, but yes, it, you know, uh, requiring an activated license or whatever for Windows and or Office could also be part of this problem.
0: Yeah, especially when I hear this is something that was patched
1: in 2015. Uh, yeah. That's... Pfft. But we're only in the beginning of 2016. Well, I guess we're halfway yeah. through 2016, almost already. Yeah, yeah. Which is also ridiculous. But anyway. Yeah, because it was it was it was discovered in August of 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess yeah, that's actually older than they make it sound here. Um, the, it's almost a year old at that point. Uh, an error uh, enables an attacker to execute arbitrary code using a specially crafted EPS image file, which is a ex- kind of PostScript file. The exploit uh, uses PostScript and can evade uh, ASLR and uh, data execution prevention protection methods. That's no good. No. ASLR uh, of the,
0: is uh, often, a lot of stories you cover these days, ASLR is getting bypassed. Yeah,
1: so ASLR is supposed to protect you from all these buffer overflows and exploits, and it turns <laughs> out that it can be bypassed and a will solve the case. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the big accomplishments back in SP 2 if I recall, right? Or SP3 Yeah, so somewhere? it was that and, uh, and the DEP, or data execution prevention, right. which was uh, using extra flag in the CPU to say this memory contains data and can never be executed. Uh, I'm not sure how they're bypassing that one. Uh, But basically, this report from Kaspersky shows multiple different groups using this exploit. And you can actually see they have a timeline there showing the different groups overlapping and when they're using it and so on. You see the one group focused on when it was like a zero day. And then later on, you see the different groups pick up on it and keep using it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, One of the groups was actually targeting the Japanese military industrial complex, uh, in December of 2015, Kaspersky Labs became aware of a targeted attack against the Japanese defense sector. In order to infect victims, the attacker sent an email with an, an attached DOCX file uh, that exploited the CVE, uh, 2015, 24, or uh, vulnerability in Microsoft Office using an embedded EPS, or encapsulated PostScript object. The EPS object contained a shellcode that dropped and loaded a 32-bit or 64-bit DLL file depending on the system architecture nice <laughs> suggesting that lots of people are still running like windows xp or something with uh 32-bit i guess so yeah nobody installs 32-bit windows anymore right hmm i guess if they if the author is determined it's necessary to
0: have the capability to work on both well, if, must you're, be if enough. you're
1: using windows if you're using office 2007
0: you're probably still using xp yeah right? for sure yeah because that would be that would be ta- that would technically be called I think that was called Office XP. Actually, that version was right. Two thousand. No, there was two. There was Office two thousand seven, and then Office XP, and then no, it was Office two thousand three. No, XP. Yeah, it was two thousand three yeah, then XP two thousand
1: seven. Oh,
0: okay, okay, okay. So it's right. So that was that was yeah. The that was sort of early
1: days XP era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, two thousand seven would have been late XP, but. Vista is like 2008, Oh, yeah, right? okay. So, I'm thinking of Office XP as early XP era. You're right. Yeah, Office XP is Jeez. like 4 ish Yes, yeah. right. Why, well, that is... But anyway, so yeah, so it's basically embedded in the Microsoft Office docx file. Yeah. It's some encapsulated postscript that runs shell shellcode that actually figures out if you're 32 or 64-bit and drops the right virus.
0: And, and so, it, so it's not
1: just EPS image files? It could also be docx files as well? Well, they embedded the EPS file into the docx file. Oh, I see. <laughs> and then Windows, you know, Office renders it because it's part of the doc pile. I see. <laughs> uh, this in turn exploits another vulnerability to uh, elevate local privileges on the local system, CVE 2015-1701, and then download additional malware components from the command and control server and do whatever they want. Mm.
0: So That's they can nice
1: basically have self-updating malware and so on.
0: Now, uh, did the they say anything about the command and control server? It doesn't look like it. A
1: little bit. Uh, oh, okay. The command and control server used in the attack was located in Japan and appears to have been compromised. So, uh. you know, the, the people using it as a command and control server weren't paying for it. They hacked someone they else's server. <laughs> <for this stuff laughs> Free ride. And, and put their stuff on it. However, there's no indication that it's ever been used for any of the other malicious purposes. Monitoring of the server activity for a period of several months did not result in any new findings. Hmm. We believe the attackers either lost access to the server or realized that that their attacking had resulted in too much attention from security researchers, uh, as the attack was widely discussed in the Japanese security community. So, too much heat, and so they didn't go back to the the command and control server and pick up the stash. Probably
0: part of the benefit. I mean, really, one of the main reasons, not just because it's free, but one of the main reasons you don't want to actually own the server yourself is if things get
1: ties back to you, and you can just walk
0: away. You, yeah, you start smelling a little heat, you just don't go back. And that's sort of brilliant, it's, it's especially... It's like
1: a dead drop for a spy, right?
0: Uh, yeah, especially if you cover your tracks every time you connect to the server.
1: Yep. Hmm. Uh, but if you uh, dig into the Kaspersky report, they have the different teams and how each one attacked different people using yeah. different methods and lots of detail in there. Yeah, it, it's really great. I've been showing some images from the different yeah. parts of the... The different reports have some of the but images, You can see too. the different groups and, and all have mm-hmm. different names and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some or all the teams might actually be related. One of the interesting ones was uh, the attackers used at least one uh, known one-day exploit. So that's like a zero-day, but you basically start attacking people with the exploit the day after it's disclosed. So you didn't find the zero-day and start using it before. Right. What zero-day means is the bad guys found the exploit and started using it before there was a patch. One day means as soon as the patch came out, people figured out what the problem was, or the details came out with the patch. Yeah. Uh, and then they wrote an exploit and started using it against people that hadn't patched yet. Yeah, they're banking so on, on you, you being had one lazy day to patch.
0: They're making you, they're figuring, so, you know what, they're not going to get around to this. They got, they got yeah. stuff to do. They're not going to get this patch that fast. They're banking on people not getting around to
1: it. Exactly. Uh, or just not bothering. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're missing the last 10 patches, the chance you're going to miss the 11th one is pretty high. Anyway. Uh, so they used the one-day exploit to exploit uh, the 2015 25 EPS parsing vulnerability. Uh, and then patched, uh, which was patched by Microsoft on September 8th. Uh, we're currently aware that about four different variants of that exploit, which was called EPS-IMP32.FLT. Um, the original one was used back in August 2015 against targets in India by the Platinum or 2-for-1 APT group. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it seems like some of this, there might have been some sharing going on between these groups, which either means that, you know, they bought off-the-shelf stuff or that they're related or something. Or inspired. I mean, really, sometimes with yes, some of this These stuff, groups are perfectly happy to steal from each other as well. <laughs> exactly. So just because they're sharing stuff doesn't, you know, it, they could be sharing, they could be stealing, yeah. or they could have just figured out the same thing. <clears> and they could and have said, oh, the- you
0: know what? I see what they're doing. Let's go get it. I mean, let's be honest. That's sort of what their uh, tool set is, right? That's their, that's their core competency, as it were. Uh, fascinating and also so funny that uh, the only real true reason that this got as much traction as it did is people just don't patch. They just – they simply – there is enough computers out there. There's enough stuff connected to the internet that just simply doesn't get fixed. And, I mean, how old are these? 2015 from August? We're talking, uh, we're talking probably Windows XP computers in some cases. We're talking Office 2007. This stuff is just—I I, I don't want to be uh, over the top about it, but it feels unfixable to me at this point, Alan. It feels like it can't—there's well, yeah. no uh, coming back from this. If, this if, it's, if it's this old, stuff from 2004, and it still hasn't been fixed, it's never going to get fixed until it dies.
1: Right. So, you know, you can protect yourself
0: yeah. by keeping up to date. Right, but. right. But the problem is— <laughs> there is still an impact on the rest of us even when it's not right. our systems to get a, either even if it's just a abstract strengthening of the cyber criminal community and enriching of the cyber criminal community even if it's that that affects all of us in the aggregate and it just i don't know it's it is really it, we have really built ourselves something here and i i hate to bang this horse too cuz i know i've said i wasn't going to kick more dead horses but <clears throat> We're just doing it all over again with the Internet of Things. We're, like, literally, we're just repeating the same cycle, only this time these things are Internet-connected out of the box instead of, you know. Most of, these, most of these systems probably aren't connected to the Internet anymore, but I, I, the Internet of Things is, whew, that's going to be an interesting, challenging time, Alan. Uh, any other thoughts on this story? Uh, not on that one. I'll tell you what. Speaking of the Internet of Things, you know how you do it right, Alan? I got a pro tip for you. You go to Ting because Ting doesn't get in the way of the updates. Ting doesn't care about that kind of stuff. You go to techsnap.ting.com. I've been a Ting customer for over two years, and I've over the years I've tried different devices, and I keep and I think Alan's probably going to agree with me on this. I keep coming back to the Nexus devices, like even when they're not like the best. Like I don't think the five X is necessarily like the best built phone out there. It's not an all metal body, um, but at the same time, like when you go to Ting right now. It's an unbelievable price. You could get you can get this phone with no contract, no early termination fee. You only pay for what you use, and no, no, no software pre-installed. Just the pure Google experience with monthly security updates. Three hundred and thirty-eight dollars directly. Boom, right there. You get it. You actually, I think that's probably from the Play Store. That's the other thing I think is great. Is like Ting's like, well, why would we bother? Getting into the shipping and receiving of this device, if we can just hook you up by buying it through Google Play directly. I mean, it truly is the best experience because they have CDMA and a GSM network, so you can pick which one's better in your area. You only pay for what you use: your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. It's just six dollars for the line. They have a bunch of really great phones at different prices. They just added the Cursera Rise. Now, one of the things that's unique about this phone besides the $58 price and that's with no contract, right? That's no early termination. $58, you pay for what you use. Uh no, it's an older Android phone, but what's kind of cool about it? <clears throat> thing has an QWERTY keyboard. It actually has a freaking QWERTY keyboard and you can get it for 58 bucks from Ting. They also just recently added the LG K7, $118, a good option for simple smartphone users that want a good Android experience. $118. Then I think this is probably This is probably, if you're on, I would say this or the Nexus 5X, this is a little cheaper and it's, in some ways it's better, this is the LG G4 for $293. It's got that leather back with a button on there on the back that's kind of cool with a nice camera. It's a really nice machine, especially for those of you that are photo buffs. $293. Unlocked. You own it. It's yours. Like like when you buy your laptop, techsnap.ting.com. Go there, take a look at their savings calculator, see what your current usage would look like on the Ting network versus maybe what you're paying for now. Remember, you don't have to buy a whole bunch of minutes and stuff like that, All how many megabytes you might use. And if you've got Wi-Fi in your area, then whenever you're on your Wi-Fi, it's absolutely free. And that, that is really cool. Check them out, techsnap.ting.com. i tell you what, when I'm on Wi-Fi, Telegram, Hangouts... All that stuff. I don't have to make a single phone call. I don't have to use the cellular network at all. It feels like, well, it feels like I figured out how to do these things, and I should be able to do these things, and I don't need a cellular network as a middleman to, to handle all of this. That's what I like about Ting. So I primarily, when I'm here at the, I'm here at the office right now, at least in the studio, I've got full Wi-Fi reception. Uh, the Wi-Fi access points like literally on the other side of the of the wall
1: over there. Uh, and so that, that's the window behind you. What are you talking?
0: <laughs> yeah, about? I know, right? Yeah, well, that wall, that wall, that wall. Uh, over there. Um, so uh, that that means when I'm here at the studio, every podcast I download, every phone call I make over uh, Hangouts or Skype or whatever. I used to use Vibra a lot. I don't really use that as much anymore. That's all. That's all. Just absolutely free. And why shouldn't it be? Why do I have to pay for a whole bunch of minutes that I literally never use? I don't even like to make calls when I'm driving anyways. So, check—it's just really check out Ting, because if, if you're a little savvy, if you know the difference between having complete control over your phone and your account versus having to pay into some sort of duopoly, and if you know that there's things like CDMA and GSM, even if you don't really know the big difference, like if you've heard those two terms before, you're probably savvy enough to just get a ton of value out of Ting. I hear, about, I hear about it all the time. Before we started the show, I got a note from the chat room. just was going on and on about their fantastic customer support. Check them out. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And by the way, I... Pi- it I pi- sucks to have that rubbed in every week I know. when I can't get it. I know. And oh, okay. By the way, just really quick. S6. Boom. Right there. If you were going to get a phone, Alan... I mean, if you, I, love, I know you like your phone, but if you're going to get a phone for the U.S. or get a Ting phone like you're new into Ting... Three hundred three dollars for the S six. That's literally three hundred dollars less than what I paid for it when I got it, and now Rekai has it. And that's a great phone with a great processor in it, and it supports uh, Samsung Gear VR, which is pretty cool. Um, okay. Check them out, TechSnap.ting.com. Yeah, I know it sucks; they don't have it in Canada. I'll tell you what, too, Alan. Uh, I think well, it's because our
1: triopoly here is actually worse than yours.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think probably they'll probably I could see them continuing on and getting into other businesses that uh, you know because. They're backed by two cows, so they're kind, of, they're kind of always watching that kind of stuff. Like Now they're getting into fiber here in the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised if they have a few other things up their sleeve that might land yeah. in your area. Okay, so I honestly I rolled my eyes when I heard the term dark cloud. I, I, I don't know why. It just felt like kind of a catchy term. But uh, Krebs has a bit of a breakdown here. Maybe, maybe you could help me understand what the term is and if I really should be rolling my eyes. It feels catchy, Alan. I'm going to be yeah, honest well, with this you. Was,
1: uh, yeah, this is... The technical term is like fast flux botnet, but. Okay, all right. Oh, that actually. Um, See, now that sounds cool. (laughs) I'm just going to (laughs) say. Uh, So yes, crooks who peddle stolen credit cards on the internet face a constant challenge. How to keep their web shops online and reachable in the face of meddling from law enforcement officials, security firms, researchers, and vigilantes. Mm, It's our obligatory crabs on security. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) In this post, we'll examine a large collection of hacked computers around the world that currently serve as a criminal cloud hosting environment for a variety of cybercrime operations. Interesting. From sending spam to hosting malicious software and stolen credit card shops. It's like a distributed dark cloud? Um, not quite. It's not quite like a regular cloud where you're actually hosting it there. I think in a lot of these cases, it's just used as like a reverse Tor or something. Oh, okay. To, uh, to hide the real address of the shop. That actually makes uh, a lot um, of sense. Because because the big questions you have are, how do you keep your site online while hosting it in a, on hacked machines you don't control? Because they can go up and down all the time. Like, mm-hmm. So. The big question is how do you keep, you know, the latest version of your database? Uh, all, you know, how do you keep your database in sync when you have this many nodes that are popping right. up and down <laughs> all the time and so on? When grandma's XP yeah. computer keeps rebooting. <laughs> yeah, or how do you keep data secure, right? Uh, if you're sell- if you're running a credit card shop, you have a database of these stolen credit cards that you want to sell. Well, why would I b- Buy them when I could just compromise the same machine you compromised to host a copy on.
0: Yeah, like we said, take them. There's a large portion of their customer base that already has the skill set to
1: just take it. (laughs) So yeah, Uh, and and that kind of thing. So uh, Krebs says I first became aware of this botnet uh, while I was, which I've been referring to as the Dark Cloud for want of a better term. Okay. After hearing about uh, Noah Dunker, who's the director of security labs at the uh, Kansas City based Risk Analysis Labs. Dunker reached out after watching a YouTube video that Krebs had posted that featured some um, existing and historic credit card fraud sites. He asked what I knew about one particular site, one called Uncle Sam, whose homepage uh, is a picture of Uncle Sam pointing at you and saying, I want you to I got to say, this looks like a million-dollar website. Like, you could
0: you – know, I not really a million dollars, but I mean it looks great. Like, I, this is professional work.
1: Uh, It says, I confess that I knew little of this shop other than its uh, existence and asked why he was so interested in this particular crime store. Uh, Dunker showed me how the Uncle Sam card shop uh, and at least four others that were hosted in the same dark cloud and how the system changed the IP address of each website roughly every three minutes. The entire robot network, or botnet, uh, consisted of thousands of hacked home computers spread across virtually every time zone in the world. Uh, So most of these hacked machines... Apparently, I imagine, are just used as a repeater. So rather than actually hosting the site on these machines that are coming and going and where you can't be sure that somebody isn't going to be looking at the data that you're storing on these machines, instead what they would do is just proxy a connection back to your real server somewhere and you've managed to keep the server secret by only allowing people to connect through this mm-hmm. botnet. Hmm. Uh, although, you know, and at worst, people figure out the secret location of the, the main uh, backend server rather than getting the actual data from it and of course you can do this in, in layers and so that mm-hmm. they'd have to follow the whole chain which mm-hmm. is bouncing up and down the whole time uh, and probably wouldn't be able to find the origin server mm-hmm. hmm. um, and so yeah so this technique is what's called a fast flux botnet where basically your the dns points to a different ip address every couple of minutes or uh, it's changing even more frequently than that, but it's just your DNS cache that keeps you locked on one machine for that long. And so if you did the lookups from a second location that used a different recursive DNS server, you would probably see different results. Okay, okay. Uh,
0: are, you, are you saying that they are directing people to the different machines via DNS, but yes. but people's local DNS cache? Okay, how are they updating DNS records that fast?
1: Well, uh, what you can do is something like what we do at Scale Engine with our GDNSD. Uh, with our global server load balancer, is we actually when we get a request, we come up with a list of servers that can answer that request, and based on you know how specific we want to be for that request and how busy things are, we might come up with a pool of twenty servers that we could send back.
0: Right. Okay. okay and we yeah.
1: limit the number we send back to like three, but if two people were looking up at the same time, even if they're in the same area and they're going to get the same group of eligible servers, the result they get will be different a different three out of that random 20. So if I had this button and I just had, you know, a thousand IP addresses, and I would just send a different random one to every request. Is it is it strange
0: that the first thought that comes to my mind is this sounds like an abuse of the DNS system? Like it's putting load on the DNS system that if this, a if something bit. like this were a large scale, right, these are constant <laughs> DNS records that have Almost, to be updated.
1: Well, you are the you're not actually updating the DNS record, right? Like, the, oh, the, right, of course, The authoritative yeah. server right. that right. controls this just instead of having a database, it, it has this yes. list and it just randomly picks one. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then Google or whatever recursive DNS you're using caches it for a small amount of time. Right, whatever. So you're creating is. a little bit more traffic when people look up your website, but it only yeah. It's not like it's not like you're constantly your submitting new records and yeah, okay. Right. Uh, you're just not. Asking, you're asking for your records not to be cached very long, but that's fairly common with almost everybody that has mm-hmm. a load balancer of any kind. So yep, anything yep. cloud is already doing something like that. Yeah, it looks pretty normal. You know, uh, it's basically what you have to do unless you're using uh, something like DigitalOcean's floating IP addresses where you can have one IP address and move it between machines instead. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, there, there was a paper we covered like two or three years ago about these fast flux botnets and how you can use them. Uh, but, yeah, so it seems like they're probably just repeating to then some concentrator that eventually gets back to the, the real server that has the website. Um, although you do wonder how often people try to go to the website and can't because the machine that was whose IP address they got back has gone down or something. But, huh. you know, in general, people leave <laughs> their computers on for regular amounts of time. And uh, if you read the details of this story, you can see they actually uh, look at the machine and decide what roles to give it. And maybe it can't host the website until it proves that it normally stays on for a couple days at a time and doesn't, you know, it's not a laptop that's going on and off all the time. Uh, one of the interesting things, as a side effect, this is a really good uh, denial of service mitigation mechanism. If hmm. someone tries to denial of service your website, they're hitting like one individual server that everybody else is getting sent somewhere else. And, you know, if they take out a bunch of random people's home computers with denial of service attacks, what do you care <laughs> right, we let's get the internet cycles to the next one. <laughs> Why do you care? <laughs> yeah. They say uh, the Windows based malware that powers the botnet assigns infected hosts different roles depending on the victim's machine's strengths or weaknesses. Mm. So look at how good the internet connection is, how much RAM, how much CPU, et cetera. The more powerful systems might be used as the DNS servers. So they don't even host their own DNS servers, right? So they're harder to shut down. Uh, while infected systems behind, say, home routers might get a reverse proxy set up so that the, attack, uh, the infected machine connects out to some machine that isn't behind a router or firewall so that the attacker has a way to get into those machines and control them to do stuff like send spam or whatever. Mm. So that allows the attackers to control the machines remotely. Uh, it's unclear whether this button is being used by uh, just one group or person or if it's actually... Being used by a whole bunch of different people, uh, the variety of cybercrime campaigns that Risk Analytics uh, has tracked uh, operating throughout this network suggests that maybe the people that own the network or but they don't really own it, but people who set up this network might rent it out to different uh, cyber crooks, you know, when they're not using it.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. hmm. you know, on, Why the not? Cre- on the same forum here's where you some... sell stolen credit cards, you'd be like, "Hey, you need yeah. to use a botnet. I have this one." Yeah, here's here some here's some on-demand people. infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, Still, other clues suggest that the whole thing may be orchestrated by the same gang. Uh, there's, uh, you know, like this uh, Uncle Sam site. There are a whole bunch of them that have very similar kind of feel to them and like design of the website and so on. Like, there's another one there, Mister Bin, which is uh, all the rest of it looks like Mister Bean. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then there's like. There's like a Daffy Duck one, I think, and there's a list there just under Mr. Bin, I think.
0: The whole site has got a few uh, screenshots of it, too. Uh, uh, Yeah, Bin.
1: Here's Popeye. Yep, there's a Popeye one. That's nice. I like the Popeye one a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, they definitely got a good web designer in there somewhere. Yeah. Damn. Some pretty crazy stuff. They say Uh, over, yeah, it's 2000, 2,000 infected endpoints. Mostly broadband well, subscribers. So one is just uh, mostly in, like, the Ukraine and so on. Uh, but, yeah, a more in-depth report from the risk analytics people uh, is expected next week. Uh, so oh. there might be more information about how this works. Hmm. Uh, and Krebs points out, if you like this story, check out his other piece about the uh, Joker's stash. I think we covered that when it came out uh, back in March. Yeah. Uh, which covers a little bit about the unique communication systems that site uses to keep itself online and reachable from anybody who wants to buy stolen credit cards.
0: And we have that linked in the show notes. So, there awesome. you go. Huh, fascinating. And uh it, you know what it you know what it makes me think of, honestly, is I can't help it, is it makes me think of how could we use this as sort of a distributed like community-built, like, maybe this could be a way to do uh, types of hosting for, and front-end proxying, or front-end load balancing for, like, open-source projects or something. Like, maybe there's a way to use this for good in
1: some con, in some capacity? Is that... Yeah, not really. Uh, there, was, there was one... <laughs> we got bit to it, we're good. <laughs> right, but there was a, there was a caching system, uh, Coral Cache, it was called. It was big back when, like, um, uh, what was the thing before Reddit? Dig? Dig, yes. Dig back in the dig days uh, as a cache for websites that would go down under the load of of getting slashed out. Mm. Uh, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Remember it was like N-Y-U-D that, yeah. or whatever? Something yeah. like that. Do you oh, think okay. that's feasible? Uh, well, yeah, that that existed. The big thing is, you know, people opting in, obviously. Yeah. The problem with doing it for, is like, denial of service mitigation is, I don't want my home internet connection going down because I was trying to help somebody yeah, yeah. else keep their site up.
0: Uh, for another example of something that just has not taken off, even though the technology has existed for a while now, I, I experimented with this maybe maybe four years ago. Uh, WebRTC has a peer-to-peer uh, CDN technology where you can actually... Have everybody take part in distributing files via peer-to-peer WebRTC, blah blah blah, yada yada yada, and it essentially I think someone's
1: actually done a WebRTC implementation of BitTorrent, which probably works slightly better.
0: Uh, either way, it's been technology that not only has been around for a while, but is you know there's demos of it out there, and yet nothing gets nothing yeah. gets done with it.
1: Well, you know the big one I always laugh at when it keeps coming up is uh, this peer-to-peer cloud video streaming. So it's like. So each user receives the video stream and then uses part of their upload to maybe upload that video stream to someone else. But it's like most people's connection is asymmetrical. And if, if I'm watching your feed, I don't want to also be using a megabit of my upload to relay the feed to someone else. It also seems like the more people you had distributing
0: the live stream, the larger the latency would be because you'd have yep. to account for each Especially computer. Especially
1: multiple steps. Yeah, and how do you keep that all in sync? So the more people that help even you distribute slow it to it one down. Layer, well, even if you... Limit it to one layer so that you're never more than one hop away from someone, which the only really way that would work meshing of it, and it just it wouldn't work, is, is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> but people keep trying to like, I get yeah. spam trying to sell it to me. And, well, and, I, and I like just, people, it's like, really? Because you know, uh, but the, it's, the worst one is this, the number of things that are trying to, it's like, oh, you know, you, we have this thing, it's great. Uh, you don't need a CDN. It's like, well, we are a CDN, so why would we want your thing? Have you seen
0: this? This this was from the Twit Network on May seventeenth, uh, posted by Lisa Laporte. The Twit uh, Twit is honored to be featured as a content provider at the launch of BitTorrent's new live streaming app, BitTorrent Live. And so, this is basically that. It's a uh, it allows live Except streaming... Except for slightly more torrent-based, but yes. They say leg times vary widely on platforms, and Bintorrent says they've cut latency the down to 10 seconds. There was a
1: thing for this with VLC years ago. And it... The main problem was just that people didn't have enough upload speed back then. Yeah. That always is going
0: to be an issue. And people overestimate how good their connection is a lot. All the time.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, well, in particular, and people will overuse their upstream such that their downstream falls over. hmm hmm um, but yeah, like most torrent clients now even, if you start downloading a file, um it can you can then, you know, in like uTorrent, you can open the file and have it stream into it creates a local yeah. web server on a different port yeah. and VLC connects to it and you watch the video while it's that's, still downloading. That's like how popcorn time works. The uh yeah. yeah. The the main thing there is BitTorrent originally would purposely get the file out of order right, right, to, yes. to try to distribute to cause this the swarm to have more complete copies of the mm-hmm, file,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but you know when your goal is to watch the file through, then you just start you wanna, at the beginning, you, right? Well, it still grabs from the end too, but it kind of prioritizes getting. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, the chunks, but you know, with my connection, I can usually um, get the video in uh, you know two or three minutes where I don't mind waiting for the whole file to be done you, before I start watching. Have you tried Netflix's new speed test on your? Uh- yep. Uh, their speed test is a little short. Short, um, short. You say? How so? Yeah. Uh, well, it it doesn't run for enough seconds to actually measure my connection. <laughs> uh, so it, it it only comes up with like about three hundred megabits uh, instead of the full, you know, one thousand. Uh, whereas speedtest.net actually does find the full thing uh, because their test runs for. Like 20 more seconds. That is legitimately
0: not even a first world problem. I don't even know what to call that. Uh, that is. That <laughs> that's is, a 1% problem. Yeah, is. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's great, Alan. Well, uh, you know, one of the reasons Alan has a big old connection that fast, really? Not even joking, is so he can put a bunch of great IX systems at the other end of that pipe. Boom, you got to put some hardware there. Alan is crazy about his hardware. He's got data centers, and you know what? He's picky. Yep. And uh, I'm very picky too. I've gone through. What was supposedly the industry's best over my 13 years of deploying servers, and I can tell you, IX Systems sets the bar higher. iXsystems.com slash techsnap, that's where you go to build a system for your workload. Open source, Linux, BSDs, TrueNAS, FreeNAS, check them out. iXsystems.com slash TechSnaps. TechSnap, singular. Uh, these systems rock. They're powered by Intel's great processors, and they'll build them in all the different configurations. And I I would love to say it's the spots here on the TechSnap program that have contributed to this, but in reality, <laughs> it's it's the package. It's not just the hardware. It's not just the people. It's not just the engineers. It's not just the sales team. It's not just the community connections. It's all of it, including their podcast outreach. iX Systems sees annual growth exceeding 50%. <clears throat> <clears throat> Congratulations, IX Systems. Now, that, what's really great about this, as they put it, a leader in enterprise storage and servers driven by open source. I love that as a sub-headline to that right there. Right there. Right there in the first paragraph. I think that's amazing. If you need to go into something new, if you need to take a risk on something, if you have to build something, you want to have somebody that really has your back when it comes to the hardware. You need that to be solid. You need that to be 100%. And that's why iX is seeing growth like this.
1: Yeah, uh, The other impressive stat is they have on there uh, the amount of data they have under management, meaning you know, the amount of storage they've sold to people that are using their software. Mm. Do you see it? I see uh, it might be data. down here. Uh, data storage product line uses the
0: trusted open ZFS storage platform. Um, solutions, doot, doot, doot. I don't think I see it. But they do talk about doing few terabytes to multiple petabytes, which is awesome, full data rack storage. That's uh, pretty great. 20 years of experience building data center solutions.
1: It's really neat. Uh, But, you know, it's it's the fact that they, they give the same treatment to, you know, your one little server for home as they do to, you know, the ones that are going to... The, a hospital to run important healthcare. Well, stuff. and
0: and you know, really, you are sort of a good example because you've been working with them for a long time. And when they first started working with you, Scale Engine and Alan Jude wasn't as well known as it is now. And they still worked with you uh, on a level that was, I think, I think I remember you saying in your early stories very impressive because they helped walk through decisions that made implementing your servers
1: much easier, well, yeah, especially like, when it came to like the version of FreeBSD at the time. Yeah, well, the very first uh, server I bought from them for big storage stuff, it's like, well, I've, I've never even... I didn't even know that SAS could do multipath or what that was, uh, but they recommended it. And then so, you know, they sold me on it. And, I go, and then when I got it, I was like, I actually don't know how to set this up. And then they helped me through that too. So even the after-sales support was great. Oh, I found man. the number here. It's in the first paragraph. I don't know how you missed it. Because <laughs> uh, I was reading the bottom it, paragraph. That's how. <laughs> half, uh, half of an exabyte. Of wow. storage under management. <laughs> that's a really big number. Yeah, that is. That's, that's
0: really impressive. Yeah, check them out. iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to land there, learn more about them, and support our show. They also have a white paper that will help you grease those wheels up the chain. I really think this would be a great transition for your business, small yep. business or a large enterprise, and they've been around Dude. for a long time. Check them out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Okay, Alan, I like the pitch on this next story. The uh, researchers are reporting, I won't spoil it, but the researchers are reporting that malware tactics used by a well-known APT
1: group are beginning to change. Now, that's that's a pitch. What's going on? I know. So the WECB APT group, or gang, <laughs> okay. uh, is now using DNS tunneling for their command and control systems. okay. So, uh, Palo Alto Networks has reported a shift in the malware tactics used by the group uh, and added a rare but effective new tool to its bag of tricks. Uh, Weckby attackers are tunneling uh, to attack tech- or turning to a technique known as DNS tunneling in lieu of more conventional HTTP delivery of command and control for remote access control of infected computer networks. So, instead of having the infected machines call out over HTTP or HTTPS to a server to get their instructions, they do DNS lookups because a lot of uh, security systems on networks don't actually expect that. Right? Like they'll see, oh, why? What's this HTTP connection to this uh, server that nobody in our company should be connecting to? I will grant you, HTTP is under much more scrutiny these days. Yeah, than HTTPS and HTTPS too. <laughs> some stuff, like HTTPS is like, okay, it's an encrypted connection, but why is it going to? we shouldn't be connecting to I, anything in the ukraine i have
0: definitely worked in networks where we blocked all outbound dns queries because you we
1: only wanted you using the internal dns because right. it will it can go through the internal dns server i suppose so it's just like you're just doing dns lookups right
0: yeah so it could just become and then it would just get cached on the local dns server <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay
1: Fair enough. (laughs) So, uh, is a group that has been active for a number of years, targeting various industries such as healthcare, telecommunications, aerospace, defense, and high tech. The group is known for leveraging recently released exploits, uh, very shortly after the exploits are available, such as, uh, the case of the hacking team's zero, uh, flash zero day exploit. Hmm. Uh, The malware used by the Weckby Group has ties to the HTTP browser malware family Hmm. uh, and uses DNS requests as a command and control mechanism. Additionally, it uses various obfuscation techniques to thwart researchers during analysis. Based on metadata seen in the uh, discussed samples, Palo Alto Networks has named this uh, malware family PIS loader or PIS loader. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Not not two S's though. I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Be careful. Yes. Uh, The initial dropper contains a very simple code that is responsible for setting persistence by setting a a run registry key in Windows registry and dropping and executing an embedded Windows executable. So the dropper is a binary that sets it up to run at boot and inside the binary actually contains a binary that will copy out of itself and throw on your hard drive. Limited obfuscation, uh, was encountered where the author split up strings into smaller substrings and then use uh stir copy or stir cat to build the strings back into the thing so that the, uh, strings of text in it won't be directly visible by just a simple analysis. So you won't see URLs and registry keys because they break it up every so many characters hmm. and then put it back together after hmm. in maybe a different order or whatever, uh, They also used the same technique to generate garbage strings that are never used to throw you off the trail. Uh, It is likely to deter detection and analysis of the sample. Uh, The payload is heavily obfuscated and uses the return-oriented programming, or ROP, technique, as well as a number of garbage assembly instructions that actually don't do anything but make you think they do. In the example below, uh, in the paper there, uh, code highlighted in red assembly serves no purpose other than to defer or deter reverse engineering of the sample. This code uh, can be treated as garbage and completely ignored. The entirety of the function is highlighted in green, um, where two function offsets are pushed to the stack, followed by a return instruction. This return instruction will next point execution uh, first to a null function, which will then point code execution to the next function. Uh, This technique is often uh, used throughout the runtime of the payload, making static analysis very difficult. Uh, The malware is actually quite simplistic once the obfuscation and garbage code is ignored. So after they spent all the time digging and figuring out how it works, it's actually not that complicated. But (laughs) with all the obfuscation, it took a lot of work. Right. Uh, It it begins by generating a random 10-byte alphanumeric header. Uh, The remaining data is then base32 encoded uh, with the padding removed. This data is used to populate a subdomain that can be used in a subsequent DNS request for a TXT record. So then, basically, it sends out a request for a header, which is this unique per machine ten character code, and then a six character code that is the command it wants to run, or want you know what it, what it's asking it to do, uh, and then the DNS server on the other end responds, "Hey, uh, I want that particular machine to do this," and the DNS TXT response tells it what to do, you know. Uh, so. You might be able to detect this by looking for weird TXT records like that, but the attackers could very easily switch this to return, you know, I random IP addresses, and then by looking at the number that that IP address represents, you can, you know, assign it different values. You know, that's how most DNS blacklists work, right? They return 127.0.0.2 mm. for for one meaning and .3 for a different meaning or whatever, right? Um, the use of DNS as a command and control protocol has historically not been widely adopted by malware authors because, you know, you have to build your own DNS server to make it work. Uh, the use of DNS as a command and control server by loader, uh to bypass certain security products that may not uh, be inspecting the DNS traffic looking for this, right? They're looking for HTTP command and control stuff. You know, uh, the big one here is... Sure, you can make it so that uh, the Windows machines in your office won't ever be allowed to connect to servers in, like, China and the Ukraine to stop bad things like malware. Um, It won't stop them completely, but, you know, it's an extra step you could take. Uh, But, you know, your DNS server is going to probably connect to just anywhere. Uh, And the interesting thing is, yeah, like you said, a lot of places will stop you using any DNS server except for theirs so they can do stuff. But... You know, the DNS server is allowed to connect to DNS anywhere because it has to be (laughs) for DNS to work. (laughs) Uh, The command and control server will respond with TXT records that are encoded similar to the initial request. Hmm. In the response, the first byte is ignored, uh, more obfuscation, and the remaining byte uh, data is base32 encoded. An example of that is found below, and you can see that when you decode it, it actually turns out to mean CIFO, which is actually collect victim system information. Hmm. So, system info. Um, the malware also looks for specific flags in the DNS response to prevent it being spoofed by a DNS server not run by the authors of the malware. Uh, luckily, Palo Alto Networks was able to reverse engineer the malware and find the special flags. So, it actually only works if the DNS server sends a set of flags that would normally wouldn't make any sense. Saying, like, recursion denied, but also setting the bit that says recursion is available at the same time. <laughs> Normally, those two would never be set together. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one of the other, or two of the other fields just get set to hex one instead of the normal result you would expect. Uh, and this, this way, uh, somebody, a researcher couldn't set up a DNS server to spoof these and, and try to figure out how they work is easy. Huh. Yeah, so the commands that it has is a SIFO, which gives you system information. The command drive will give you a pipe-delimited list of the drives. You can see at the bottom there. You send the command, and you get back mm, mm-hmm. ACD. A, C, yeah. um, interesting is suggests the machine that was infected still has a floppy drive. <laughs> 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 um, list will list file information for the provided directory. So you can you know, list SQL and slash or whatever. Uh, and you can upload a file to the victim Machine and then open to spawn a, shell, a command shell and run the stuff you've uploaded. <laughs> so you can easily upload new malware or run commands or whatever you want to do. Um, The Wickby group continues to target various high-profile organizations using sophisticated malware. The Pissloader malware family uses various novel techniques such as the DNS command and control, as well as making use of uh, return-oriented programming and all the other uh, anti-analysis tactics that they use. And so they're a very sophisticated group that's writing pretty crazy stuff. That is pretty crazy stuff. Huh. Boy,
0: poor DNS this week, right? Last week it was the bank. This week it's DNS. It's uh, it's rough out there for a DNS server. Any other thoughts, Alan? That's great. Uh, no, that's about it for that. A change in tactics. I like that. I like how they how they pitch that over at Palo Alto Networks too. Which uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've heard from them. I think. Okay, well then I'll tell you about how you go just run your own server. Just take care of all the shenanigans over at DigitalOcean. SnapOcean is the promo code you use to get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean.com. A simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server. Now, we were recently asked, what is a droplet? Well, think of a droplet as anything you want from just a computer with the OS you've chosen running up on a really fast machine with a great connection at a super good cost. On-demand. Yep. Or it can be something you deploy with an entire application stack running containers um, in the new virtualized crazy cloud environment. It can be really anything. It really kind of depends on what you want. They have a great interface. So if you just want a, a rig with FreeBSD or Ubuntu or Debian or CentOS or CoreOS or Fedora, you can just have one with a root shell and you're good to go. If you know what to do with that, have that, friend. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean to help us out and get yourself some credit. Uh, but if you want something that is more like one-click deployment, I know there's this thing out there, Own cloud, or I know there's this thing out there called XYZ, and I want to try it out for a little while. Or I want to put it in production, but I I don't really know how to set up a rig. Go to DigitalOcean, use the promo code SnapOcean, set up a machine, learn there for a while, and check out some of their great documentation. Begin to understand how to operate a system like this. Take advantage of their snapshots. You have to start somewhere, and when the great thing is when you're ready to put it in production, this is one of the great places to do it. They have tier one bandwidth, 40 gigabit e-connections to the virtualizers, data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany. They have a super simple interface and a great active community. Look at this questions thread. I love this. They have great tutorials that they vet all the time, but even just here where they have active QA, Super nice API, too. And even if you don't know how to take advantage of it, a lot of people do. And they've already written the code that you can just use. It's nice. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Try them out. You can get started in less than 55 seconds for $5 a month. 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte. A terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean.com. Just use that promo code SNAPOcean. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program enjoy you guys now before we run into the feedback we have a record breaker for you ladies and gentlemen a champion of titles episode 143 of the bsd now program one small step for drm one giant leap for bsd (laughs) that's a it's a good solid title it almost is more like a show description though (laughs) really it's not so much a title as it is a whole episode description
1: the pun was so good we couldn't resist.
0: I suppose so, I suppose so. Episode 143 of the BSD Now program. Uh you guys interview uh Matthew Macy, is that how you yes. say it? Matt Macy. Yeah. So what's uh, what's Matt up to? What's he talking about?
1: Uh basically, you know, the FreeBSD graphics app uh kind of stopped originally it tried to make like a BSD version of Intel's graphics drivers. Mm. Uh because gra- uh, Intel releases their i915 type graphics drivers under a dual BSD-GPL license. Uh. Uh, but when we imported them, we kind of customized them to be more BSD-like, to make them fit in with the ecosystem better. Sure. Uh, but it turns out a lot of work, and it was hard to update. Uh, and so after a huge amount of work, finally got support for Haswell, uh, which basically brought FreeBSD support up to the same as Linux kernel 3.8. Uh, and it, it was looking like it was going to be quite a while before we would get to 3.9. Uh, but then uh, Matt Macy showed up, and six weeks later, we're uh, most of the way to kernel 4.6. Wow. And so DRM, in this case, is uh, the, the, not not, uh, not digital rights management. No, it's the uh, <laughs> direct rendering manager, manager or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> Check that out, guys. So
1: it's uh, basically graphic support for all the way up to Skylake uh, on FreeBSD. Boy, that must get pretty geeky. That must be a great chat. Yeah, uh, and we talked about a bunch of other stuff too. Uh, and the best part is that he did all the work not because he cares about Intel graphics, uh, not even uh, only tangentially AMD graphics. What he actually wants to do is machine learning with GPGPU stuff. Oh. But in order to get that, you need this other thing. In order yeah. to get that, you yeah. need AMD GPU. And in order to get that, you need the newer DRM. And since he's there, you he might as well make the Intel graphics work.
0: Not a, not, not, uh, that's a pretty good one, but that's not an uncommon story in open source either. I love nope. that. Exactly. <laughs> that's cool. Episode 143, if you go grab the HD version, I bet you by the time the download finishes, well, I don't know how fast your connection is, but by the time you finish up TechSnap, you'll have more Jude for your face and another guy named Chris, not the same Chris, but another guy named Chris in a brand new episode of the BSD Now program. But with the news all done, that means here it's time for the Tech Snap feedback. <laughs> Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at com, or pop in that contact link at the top of the website or perhaps starting a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email this week comes in from David. Full stop, real talk, you guys. I'm amazed we've never covered this before. Perhaps we have in really. some degree. But I think it's good we address it right here. David writes in, he says, I've been looking for uh, colo services for my company, and as a a young sysadmin, I've never stepped foot in a data center, and I feel a bit overwhelmed. Wow. What should I be looking for in a data center, colo? Uh, There are some obvious ones like physical security, length of time in business, available ISPs, but what are other things I should be looking for, either when at the data center
1: or reviewing their offers? So there's a couple of things. The first is to decide what type of data center you want. Uh the big two classifications are a carrier neutral data center, which is basically a data center that only sells you like space and power and then you have to buy the internet connection from someone else. And maybe that way you know you can choose to buy multiple ISPs and blend them together or whatever. Or there's a regular, you know, a a full service data center or whatever where they also sell you the connection. Um uh, and, you know, that's usually them blending together a bunch of providers, but it's usually maybe a bit more money, but maybe less contract. Um, but the big thing there is, you know, kind of deciding whether you want to pick what the mix of ISPs are and, and make deals with individual ISPs, or if you just want someone to take care of it for you.
0: What would be and the it advantage? Really depend the,
1: what would, it depends on how much bandwidth you need, right? If you are oh, sure. like 100 yeah. megabits or whatever, then yeah. sure. You know, uh, Scale Engine switched recently from... We were using a place and they provided nice connections, great uptime. Everything was great. But the price for the bandwidth was kind of getting high for when we needed a lot. Uh, Switch to another place and we we pay 15 times less Hmm. (laughs) for the bandwidth. Uh, But we're also – actually, we spend about the same amount of money. We just get – 15 times as much bandwidth now i think too it also
0: depends on you planning to physically go there i know my experience Uh, mostly is with data centers i go to and so having things like crash carts and rooms to be able to rebuild servers in where they have like a monitor and ethernet where i could patch it to my rack was really beneficial this
1: is also something to have we had a second client that rented a rack beside ours and eventually they switched from the data center we were in even though it was a really nice data center to one closer to their office because it was such a pain to go the 45 minutes or whatever to this other data center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so even think though about it that. was, uh, compared for them, compared it was a better price further away, uh, the amount of time it took for their employees to go back and forth all the time, and so on, kind of. Yeah. Also, so, yeah, tr- you, definitely, but you definitely check for crash carts, uh, workspaces. Um, I don't know, with the cola we're at now, they have free food, like, M Ms and cookies and stuff, and a refrigerator stocked with stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, the and they have center, like a, they had a kitchen, but the fridge was full of employees' lunches, not stuff you were supposed to take. A lot of times, too, they'll have like meeting rooms and whatnot, where they'll have Wi Fi that's super fast. And- uh, some of the data centers uh, are built in like office buildings. I actually have office space you can rent too, if you want to have your office at the site. But that's probably not what you're looking for. Um, but yeah, so things to look for are uh, obviously the security. Uh, one of the things I really liked about the place we're leaving. Is they had uh, extra password you would set up for whenever you call them, uh, you would have to use the password to prove you're actually the client, not just somebody pretending to be them. And you know we had to file a ticket and validate over the phone before we could take equipment out of the data center and so on. Um, and you man traps and stuff, but the new place has most of all those features as well. Um, so yeah, you want to, you know, if you're going to be there a lot, you want to make sure that there's a quiet place to work. Data centers are very loud. During a tour where you're walking around, you might not notice. But if the place where you're expected to sit and work on a machine for an hour to figure out why it's not working, uh, you definitely want somewhere that's not too noisy. Yeah. It will just drive you insane. It'll hurt
0: your head. Uh, You also have to – I'm sure David's out of this, but also consider things like the power situation, what's their generator. And also, if you really care, ask what their backup contracts are for once they run out of diesel. Do they have contracts in place to get diesel refueled? Those kinds of things are good questions to ask too. If uptime is a major consideration for you, uh, there. that is a that is. There's a lot of little things, and the um, hard thing is is it's a lot of personal preference too. For me, like yeah. I, I came down to if I didn't really feel like I got good interaction with some of the people, I would have an uneasy feeling That's about that data. The center. other
1: thing is like um, with the data center where we were at. You know, uh, at least two of the people that worked there uh, watched the show. Oh, cool. Uh, that helps. So like one, one time uh, I didn't have a ticket for something and I was like, well, you know, do you, know, do you need to know what company I It's like, no, I know who you are. <laughs> that helps. In other words, like uh, back when we had a Bitcoin mining rig in the data center, when, we brought, when, it, when it had a problem and we were trying to fix it, I had forgot to bring a DVI to VGA adapter. Mm. So all the crash cards are VGA because that's what servers had. But all the video cards on this Bitcoin rig were DVI. And yeah. so... We asked one of the guys that worked at the data center. He's like, I got one in my car. I'll go get it for you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Or, I, su- you know. I suppose also be sure you
0: ask yourself. I'm sure this is something you've thought of too, but ask yourself, do I want to be or does somebody in our team want to be the one that goes there in the middle of the night or do we want a data center that has someone you can task?
1: Right. And, and that and ups the cost a lot what too. What level are they?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, uh,
1: most places will have a guy that can go and like press reset and yeah. the power cycle stuff. Yeah. Uh, but. You know, find out what their policy is about if you need them to swap a hard drive yeah. or a power supply. You know, uh one of the data centers right in the US, uh, they'll do anything that takes up to fifteen minutes for free as long as it doesn't involve a screwdriver. Hmm. But if you want if you want more than that, then you know it's yeah, $100 an hour in 15-minute increments. Something else
0: just to consider is how many people are going to need access to the data center, how many people actually need access to open up the rack. One of the things that was constantly a pain in the ass in some of the companies I worked with is we had two keys to the rack, which meant if I had to go to the damn data center in the middle of the night, I had to drive past the damn data center to the office to get the damn key and then drive back up to the damn data center, open up the rack, get what I need, and then drive the damn key back down to the damn office and then drive home. And so that, I hated that
1: versus a place that has a combo lock. Yeah, we had... We had combo locks and uh, stuff. And then the other one is, depending on your setup, if you have, say, vendor, you know, if you have HP and they're going to send somebody to go replace someone, uh, how do you get that person into your rack? Is there going to be someone at the data center who can unlock your rack for them?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And all this, you know, lots of
0: different and things. And what is like that, that process when you need to authorize someone yep. to get access to your rack? Is it going to take you all damn day or is it just a simple email off to somebody? And that's right. all good stuff. And how say. is that validated
1: so that somebody can't? Pretend to be you and get authorized to go into yeah, rank. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, uh, and if you but guys yeah, have definitely looking at, uh, you know, how much work they're willing to do for you on site, how easy it is to get there, stuff like that. Um, there was something else I was going to mention. I can't remember it now. But yeah, definitely check into the remote hands and power you know, for sure. How, how comfortable they are with actually, you know, typing stuff at the console for you. It's like. Do do any of your techs actually know what BSD is? Uh you know I've not Have you seen this screen that, before. But, <laughs> but, you know. Can you
0: tell me for the difference between a boot screen and an air screen?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like if your machine won't uh, isn't passing the FSCK and is dropping to single user mode. Will they actually know what to do to get it to work again? If, if that is I've, I've actually so huge
0: for somebody to be able to tell you, yeah, you're in single user mode, or they're, it's saying SDA, that's a yeah. that's going to be hit and miss in a data center. But that is
1: well, because you know they're on a phone with the screen pulled up on your <laughs> server. It's loud, yes, but it's like the whole screen is full of text because it's the console. Are they the type of person that's going to be able to scan over that? Find the important information and explain it to you. Why they're shouting or is it the that phone? That who's going the to have to read the whole screen or just say, "I don't know"? It just says a bunch of stuff. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so, how much are you going to need them to do stuff for you? Yeah, uh, and policies and stuff.
0: But um, and this, as Chadwick oh, points out, good one. Is there a pizza place nearby?
1: Yes. Uh, the this one was so good that the pizza place knew exactly where the place was and how to get in <laughs> to deliver stuff because you actually had to have a card to get in yeah, the gate. Okay. Because the people that work there 24-7 yeah. uh, order pizza yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the delivery places in the area know all about this data center. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, the other one is uh, check out webhostingtalk.com. It's a big forum for this industry. And they have uh, dedicated server providers and co-location providers. And you can find other people that maybe have used this place Hmm. and will tell you about their experience. Hmm. There you Uh, go. That'd be nice. I've been using this place for years and there's this occasional problem. Or every time they do maintenance on the generator, they accidentally turn off the power. It's like, well, I'm not going to want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: a great idea. Uh, if you guys have additional suggestions, I'm sure David would love them. Techsnap.reddit.com. Just look for episode 268 and leave your notes there so he can read them. Tim writes in asking about snapshot best practices. I hope this makes in time for today's show. I recently upgraded from one FreeNAS box to another, and since all the data is copied to the new FreeNAS, I decided to play with the old FreeNAS box before retiring it, just to get a better handle on ZFS snapshots. I decided to delete all the data, about 120 gigabytes, on the old FreeNAS rig, and roll back a manual snapshot i created prior to deleting the data. Wow, the data was restored in an instant. So then I decided to remove the snapshot, figuring it would be done with its job, and I no longer required it, and would just have it there taking up space. Much to my surprise... The data had been previously restored was gone. I'm sure glad I tried this on a spare box because this one was being decommissioned. My question is, uh, do we not delete a snapshot after it's restored? Do I just leave them there? What is the best procedure for purging snapshots after our rollback? is complete love the show, long-time listener of last, now Unfilter, and my favorite, TechSnap. Listening to Alan after all these years has encouraged me to deploy free BSD-based solutions at our office, including... PFSense, FreeNAS, and a handful of Apache web servers running on FreeBSD 10 inside jails, thanks to BSD's now's tutorial, Everything You Need to Know About Jails, which I refer mm-hmm. to when setting up a new jail. Thanks again. Keep up the great work,
1: Tim. So, uh, deleting a snapshot will not make your data disappear. So, maybe what you accidentally did is delete the data set, and not the snapshot. Luckily, ZFS keeps a record of everything you do so you can find out what you actually did. Oh. So, if you actually run the command sure. zpool history, it will basically tell you what you did. What and if so, it was like, still restoring? And least, still restoring. Is it, no, like, when you do a ZFS rollback? It's, insta- back, it's okay. instantaneous. Okay. So like, if you hmm. look at if I run zpool history on my machine here at home, uh, you can see over the last couple of days, here's the commands I've run. Uh, you can see, I took a snapshot of this one thing called uh, memstick one, and mm-hmm. then I replicated it to another machine where I then built on a 24-core machine instead of my little four-core home machine. <laughs> nice. Uh, and then I cloned the base data set and made one where I worked on some post-installation stuff for BSD install and then another one where I worked on my Raspberry Pi. Um, and so, yeah, if you just run that command, it'll tell you exactly what you did and then it will probably become obvious what, uh, that you did ZFS destroy path and forgot the at uh, snapshot ah. and accidentally destroyed the whole data set, not just the snapshot or something. Uh, Because as long as the uh, data set is still there, the data is there. If you roll back to the snapshot and then delete the snapshot, the data would still be there. So it would be interesting to see what you actually did and uh, what happened there. Hmm. There you go, Tim.
0: And uh, thanks for watching all the shows. We really appreciate it. Now, (laughs) if you'd like a little additional reading this week, Alan has... A great, great PDF for you.
1: The SE Linux coloring book. It's raining cats and dogs. Sure. Although this came from a tweet, and it was mostly that SE Linux is cruel to animals. (laughs) What? Yes. The title from the tweet was SE Linux is cruel to animals. So here's the little coloring book, and there's a dog and a cat. And these are the two different processes. And then we have a cat chow and a dog chow. And we know that we want to allow cats to have cat chow and allow dogs to have dog chow, but nothing else. (laughs) Right? So if we scroll down and we see, yes, the cat can eat the cat chow and the dog can eat the dog chow. And it's delicious. Happy. It's delicious. Yeah. But if the dog tries to eat the cat chow, evil Colonel Penguin guy like yanks on his leash and is like, no, you cannot have. Likewise, if the cat tries to eat Fido's chow, the Bad Colonel. Cat. don't do that. Right. I see. And then we see that, oh, what if we have Fido, the dog, was allowed to eat the chow, but now we have Spot, the other dog. And so on. And it goes on and is mean to animals. Um, you know, I don't know what to make of that. I did just read recently
0: that, you know, Chrome OS will be soon including Android Play apps. And they're using SE Linux to isolate the different uh, apps from the Chrome yeah, OS but system. You
1: know, if you want to understand SE Linux better, you can look at the color. That's not both. bad, actually. Uh, you won't feel like you're being, you know, Yeah, uh, It's a complicated beast.
0: It, it makes... But... Yes. SE uh, Linux is so complicated that it... Uh, I mean, unless you work with it all the time... That it makes app armor feel very appealing. Um but yeah. yeah uh, anyway, it's it was funny because it was being mean to
1: the animals. I like it.
0: So uh, this is great. So this was an actual letter letter. Uh, I work in IT, got this mail today, gentlemen it right, it starts. And he's he's blacked out like the telephone and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Please take a look at the enclosed hard drive and let me know uh, whether you'll be able to transfer the files and our programs on it. Into a laptop. If this is the case, I will have a laptop sent to you to get it done. Thanks much. And then it's blacked out. So they open up the box here. It's got some st- packaging stuff in there. Oh, wait a minute. That's not a hard drive. That's not a hard drive. They open it up and it's a power supply. Yeah. <laughs> the, guy opened, the guy thought he was sending his hard drive. He's sending his power supply.
1: That's, uh, that's, yeah.
0: that's, pretty, that's pretty adorable, really. Yeah.
1: So as a follow up to this, I have this diagram of a computer with all the parts labeled. Hey, is look at you. That- thinks they know how to use a computer. Yeah, it's not the CPU, that's the tower. There's the tower, and it's labeled tower. There's a monitor, and it's labeled computer. And then there's the processor, which is labeled hard drive. Sticks of RAM, which is labeled hard drive. (laughs) Video card, which is labeled hard drive. (laughs) Wi-Fi card, which is labeled hard drive. Power supply, labeled hard drive. Uh, An actual hard drive, labeled probably unimportant. (laughs) Then a DVD drive, labeled DVD DVD player. player. A floppy drive, labeled hard drive. Uh, USB port labeled Wi Fi, audio ports labeled television. Uh, what's that? ESATA, I think? Yeah, yeah. It's printer. Yeah, and then um, HDMI or display it, port or no, is as RAM. Display port is labeled as RAM. A DVI port is labeled as Internet. And a, is that yeah. VGA or serial? That's, uh, that's got to be VGA. Because this is all, that's, that's yeah, VGA got, labeled. Yeah, HDMI, USB.
0: Uh, uh, display port, DVI, and VGA. Uh, yeah, this is perfect. This is really yes. perfect. Yeah. You know what really strikes is I've personally had family members that thought these audio ports on the back of their PC were television. And they're like, and look, Chris, it came with a TV hookup. (laughs) That's what they said. Well, because
1: it does kind of look like the the, um, Uh, RCA type, like the component. Although Mm. some of them actually do have a composite output back yeah. in the day, yeah. like a Raspberry Pi 1.
0: So if you want to email us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. It's just the show name at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I don't know why that's hard. People are asking in the chat room what, what the email address is. It's literally the show name at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Also, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop down. Then you don't even need to know. You don't have to know it. You can just send us in your question directly using the contact form. Okay, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the TechSnap Roundup or stories, it just didn't quite fit at the top of the show. But we wanted to give you some links to follow up and read on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our super secret intelligence group known as the subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. Our first story didn't come from that <laughs> subreddit. I found it myself. And I really put it in here because I'm just curious to see what Alan's take was on it. Tor is uh, talking about using decentralized random number generators. To generate truly random numbers, so they'll use, like, different machines around the Tor network, I assume, to generate random numbers. What do you
1: think of this, Alan? The question becomes if, uh, as has been postulated before, the FBI were to control, say, half of all Tor nodes, Hmm. would they then be able to purposely generate not very random numbers and sabotage this?
0: I wonder. They must – I mean they must be doing this – as a response to some of the recent tor network aggressive right. tactics by law enforcement so they must be accounting for that
1: well i imagine the point of using distributed rng is more that not trusting right you know the the R, rd rand or whatever built into intel processors the summary so ends it says the end result is something that is almost
0: impossible to crack without knowing which computers from a network contributed to the final random number and
1: which entrop- right. entropy they used just if most of the machines that contributed purposely contributed bad, bad. not random numbers right then it could cause a problem. Yep, yep, yep.
0: Uh, this one's interesting. Now, I think, let's see if the images are, have not been loading for me all day. So I'll uh, refresh the page right now as we get into the round. No, they're still not, which is too bad because the images would be part yes, of the best.
1: They were earlier, but
0: yeah, yeah I Skimmers think Krebs site is
1: having some problems.
0: Credit card skimmers found at Walmart, and then Krebs has a closer look here. I wonder if he's just getting a ton of traffic on this story right now. That might be what's I don't know. going on. Uh,
1: but basically, they were uh, an overlay skimmer. So it looks kind of exactly like the regular uh, terminal at the self checkout at Walmart except for it was slightly wider, and basically it fit exactly over top of the old one. So basically, as somebody walked by, like if you watch these guys deploy these on security cameras, it's pretty crazy. Ah, that, there's a picture yeah, of it.
0: Yeah, I got a Google cache.
1: Yep. You basically, you kind of like walk by, and then just from under your shirt, pop this out and drop it on and keep walking. And basically... Nobody can like, – it, it takes you literally three seconds to plop this over top of the regular one. Yeah, that's uh, totally legit.
0: Especially at the self-checkout. And it looks the same. That's
1: yeah. – especially at the self-checkout. Wow. Because right, nobody's going to be looking, yeah. right? There, there's not somebody standing on the other side of the counter to – right? Uh, and so, yeah, you just have someone distract the the one employee that's running the, like, eight self-checkout counters, and you just plop this over top. And it's got electronics to read the keys you type in and even a card skimmer built into it. Uh, some of them actually have uh, the hole in the bottom for people that have a chip card and it will just maybe ignore that. Uh, although some of them, they will purposely not have the slot so that people will always swipe. Clever. Yep.
0: So I think we're all, we're all pretty comfortable knowing that Skynet's never really going to happen like the whole takeover the planet Skynet. That's never really going to be a problem until robots have the ability to build themselves. Wait a minute. Uh, Foxconn announces it's replacing sixty thousand factory workers with robots. Actually, they're not really announcing it; they're trying to dodge the story. But the, the reality is true: they're adding uh, a ton of robots in their assembly line now. Now, Foxconn is famous for
1: controversy when it comes to quite this the you know underpaid, overworked, uh, you know, slave labor type things in China. And so, robots don't complain. <laughs> yeah, and uh, once you and they're they're a, they're a high they don't upfront investment, bad PR
0: but. By Trying to commit suicide. And so. they're very precise, too. Yes. This is an interesting one. Beware of keystroke loggers disguised as USB phone chargers, the FBI warns. And,
1: and these. So m- somebody made a proof of concept really one good. that's not that bad. Yeah. Uh, but the FBI is like, well, someone could make one much worse. So this one is basically a regular USB charger that has had an Arduino also stuffed in the case. Uh, and it, with the near field communication chips, it can actually log the keystrokes from the Microsoft Wireless keyboards. Hmm. so it sits there and listens and and picks up all your keystrokes as you type them on your Microsoft wireless keyboard. (laughs) Then it uses its Wi-Fi to then send uh, your keystrokes to the bad guy. We've seen other models while being plugged in in the corner, charging your cell phone. Yeah, exactly. So it's not actually stealing from your cell phone; it's just using being your your cell phone charger as an excuse to be in the room near your uh uh keyboard. Keyboard, yeah.
0: Uh, here's an interesting stat for you. A third of new cellular customers last quarter
1: were cars. How about that? That tells you about a trend, huh? Yeah. Well, as, as in-dash computers get bigger and need access to data, and more manufacturers have something similar to like OnStar or whatever, uh, then, yeah, computers, or cars are going to have a GSM modem in them. I guess kind of an interesting point. But, you know, we saw what happened with, like, the Jeeps and stuff where someone could come in over that IP and uh, knock the machine off. But here's just
0: an interesting, like, comparison. So uh, in terms of activations last quarter, uh, cars, so phones were in at 31%, which is amazing. Cars were in at 32%. That's amazing. 32% more than phones. But here's something else obvious. Uh, way more than tablets. There's way more cars that were added to cellular networks than tablets last quarter. That, too, is... Well,
1: most people would probably just use Wi-Fi on a tablet in most cases, mm-hmm, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, you've got
1: one here from NIST. Tell me about this. Ah, so NIST, is, uh, which is the National Institute for Standards and Technology, has published a paper uh, providing best practices for security in full virtualization technologies. So if you're going to, say, use VMs for everything in your infrastructure... Here's some things you might want to consider about that. So it's like a 35 page thing about using VMs to run all mm. your servers and desktops yeah. and so on.
0: Oh well, you'll have to go check it out for yourself. Chatroom, yeah, we can't definitely worth a- and audience at home. We can't read the whole thing for you. This yeah, is the story I was sort of teasing you about before we started the show today. Uh, Google aims to kill passwords by the end of the year. Uh, they have a Google Advanced Technology and Projects group where they have built the Trust API. And uh, they've been working on it under the – they've codenamed Project Abacus. It was introduced last year, and Abacus aims to kill passwords not through one super secure replacement, but by mixing together multiple weaker indicators into one solid piece of evidence that you are who you say you are. Among the pieces of evidence Google suggests the Trust API could use are some obvious biometric indicators, such as your face shape and voice pattern, but also well-known or less obvious ones like how you move, how you type, and how you swipe on the screen. With services constantly running in the background of the phone, it can keep track of whether these indicators match how you normally
1: use your frickin' phone. Yeah, Uh, and I can see things like: is your cell phone in the same room as you right now? If so, then it's probably you that's doing this. They say
0: they're going to have they're they're dodgy on this, but they the new Trust API they're launching is going to be with several very large financial institutions in June, according to a Google
1: employee. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, the problem with too many weak indicators like that is, you know, how do you make sure it's actually the right thing? But as it is, you know, Google doesn't ask for your password very often as it is, right? Sounds like a great technology for an advertiser to invest in. I'll tell you that.
0: So DARPA's got an extreme DDoS project transforming network attack
1: mitigation. Woo! Well, I think the goal is to transform. I don't know that they've actually managed it, it yet. It says it right there. It says it right there, Alan. Well, that's somebody else's headline. Uh <laughs> But they've given out uh, seven different multimillion-dollar research grants hmm. to uh, uh, universities and research labs to develop mitigation techniques for service, distributed denial-of-service attacks. Hmm. So, yeah, there's uh, Georgia Tech, George Mason University, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Raytheon BBN. If you know the history back, BBN was one of the first implementations of the TCP IP stack uh, and so on. Uh, So Hmm. giving out a bunch of money to try to find ways to protect computers from Java service attacks. Let's just do
0: it for fun. A breaking news roundup here. Uh, Google has beat Oracle. Android makes fair use of Java APIs. Oracle spent millions trying to get a chunk of Android, but to no avail. This is breaking right now. It just happened.
1: uh, Uh, Interesting one. uh, There's um, a lady from, I think, uh, Motherboard.com who took time off from her job to go sit in the the gallery of that oracle versus google trial and like live tweet about the stuff that was happening yeah she did great it becomes very obvious that we almost need a separate court system for it stuff we kind of dodged a bullet with this one i think yeah but the big problem is like if the judge and the jury don't understand the concepts that are being talked about how do they make a decision about this type of thing
0: I'm amazed. At when it, I actually, I thought, I thought that was going to be the, the, the killing blow to this case. So there you go. A little breaking news here in the roundup for you. Yep. Uh, okay, now back to, back to your regularly scheduled uh, TechSnap roundup. This is just because Chris likes to complain. Uh, Fox stole a clip, if you if you want to call it that, from YouTube. They downloaded it and then used it in Family Guy, and then DMCA'd the original clip on YouTube.
1: Yeah. The amazing thing is, I think the original clip went up on YouTube in 2000 or 2009, many, many years ago. So guy made a clip of playing a video game, put it up on YouTube. Like six, seven, eight years later, Fox borrows that clip and uses it in an episode of Family Guy and then via the automatic takedown system claims that they own the video they used. I have have had... when NASA had posted a video on their own YouTube and then it got taken down by some tiny local news station somewhere because they reused that clip in their newscast.
0: That is – it
1: is. this is a big problem. But it, um, I think there's a couple of like – it seems like automated systems like this should consider if the thing that's claiming copyright came up many – like obviously very much later than the thing is claiming – it's like, well – how could a video uh, an episode of Family Guy from 2015 claim copyright over images in a YouTube video from 2009? i have I have um, every
0: day, probably three or four videos that get dinged from the back catalog as what happens is as content owners, quote unquote. Bring their content onto YouTube, and they retroactively content ID everything. And so I have like I have episodes of SciBite and Tech Talk Today, or I'm, I'm not Tech Talk Today, um, Jupiter at Night, and all of these things that are constantly getting pulled down. That uh, so our back catalog just gets spotty, and sometimes they don't get pulled. Sometimes they just have different things happen. to well, them.
1: Well, and the though. worst part
0: is, is like, what about the thirty second fair use rule? There's that, and it's like, well, what about for the last seven years or four years or three years it's been totally fine now all of a sudden it's in violation that doesn't seem yeah. fair either it
1: definitely seems like they shouldn't be able to pull down stuff that's been up for so many years
0: yeah yeah okay so we got a pdf here in the roundup. some big thick reading uh analog
1: malicious hardware Ooh. yes uh so this one is basically a way to add a small trace to a chip when it's being fa- so basically companies invent new chips but it would cost $20 billion to build their own factory to make it. So they don't. They farm it out to an existing company, usually in Asia. Uh, Well, during the process, somebody could add these couple of little traces to this chip, and then if only if this really weird set of things happens that would never actually happen except for when it was specifically done, all of a sudden it will flip a bit uh, exactly when you want it to. And so the attackers can now cause the uh, processor to... Slip on the you know authorized bit or the privileged bit uh, whenever they want, and then execute whatever code they want. So it's a paper uh, where they actually implement it uh, in a kind of small processor, but the same concept could be applied to regular processors. Hmm. Cool, Alan. But uh, it's a big deal for especially for like Internet of Things types of devices where someone could be you know if I send it the right series of messages, all of a sudden it will the chip will just start doing my thing instead of your thing. This next story in the roundup, I feel like someone or a group
0: of someones should potentially lose their job. I, I, I It has felt – this has felt like a violation. It's happened not only to uh, Angela's grandma, which we talked about in this week's Tech Talk today. It happened
1: to my aunt. She emailed me. I'm like, I have no idea.
0: It happened to my partner. She she was at, on her work computer. She intentionally had a Windows 7 machine and she didn't want uh, 8 or 10. And it turned out that like you, even when you click the X to close it, it's launching it. And she stepped away. Yep. And it was installing... so clicking the X to close it was apparently agreeing to be upgraded. Now, Microsoft says they're going to backtrack on this. Uh, but it's almost too little too late because it's affected a ton of people.
1: Yeah, people, Most of the people that are going to fall for this have already been hit.
0: I can't help but look there's some things I look at Windows 10 and it feels like a pathetic release. It's pathetic that they had to skip a version number because their last version was so crap that they wanted to distance themselves from it. That's pretty sad. And the other thing that's really sad is you can tell they want to announce we've hit a billion devices. We have X amount of customers on Windows 10. This is the most widely adopted version of Windows ever and you could also tell they resent competing against against their own versions of Windows now. They're done with it. They're sick of competing against 10 and 7, and they want everybody to move on. And they, I feel like they crossed a line here. They, In in, in my partner's case, she's, she's running a medical practice, and she has very important standards, and, and she has to be able to get access to patient records. And there is just a certain time to upgrade your operating system, and there's a certain time not to upgrade your operating <laughs> system. And the middle of a day is not one of them. Yeah, in the middle of a client day is not one of them. And so it's 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 embarrassing that one of the industry's most influential tech companies is being so lazy. And so what what well, disrespectful I don't Yeah, it feels like malware when you click an X and it launches. That's malware, Alan. That's what malware does. It's just and 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 in the case of Angela's grandma, it made it so her machine could no longer get online after the update after auto installed the update. And now she's just using her iPad. She's just letting her computer sit there. She can't get it working with Windows 10. So thanks, Google. Anyways, end of rant. Yeah.
1: Moving uh, on. Yeah. At this rate, I will just give up playing games and throw my Windows computer out the window. So uh, actually, anyway. Google might name and shame slow to update vendors. And I'm kind of curious what yeah. you think so, about so this. So previously, they did this Android Update Alliance thing, and that didn't really work out. And they tried some other things. But apparently, they might just release a report that just lists which are the worst vendors for actually getting around to updating. Windows or uh, Android stuff. I don't know how much good it'll do, but maybe if Google says you shouldn't buy an Android device from this company, maybe people won't. Maybe. I don't feel like the average consumer
0: that's buying these devices to get updated even knows that Google has a Play Store or that any of this stuff. I don't think people... I don't know. Consumers, Google is known, a known name, but it's not a strong bond. Consumers don't go into the Verizon store asking for the Google Android phone. They go in there. Not. They go in there asking for an Apple
1: iPhone, maybe. But yeah, I would love I to see Google they do ask this. The last for the ones they see on TV, I suppose. Yeah, I don't watch TV.
0: Here's really uh, all they need to do, Alan. They just they just need to get enough attention that it, it is it is a benchmark that manufacturers care about. And if they can yeah. do that, that's all they really have to accomplish. And it would at least be doing something. I would love to see Google
1: be more aggressive about this particular yeah, problem. I'd love to kill the stupid silly names for the versions because it's like i don't know what version marshmallow is why can't we just call it five or six
0: it's, yeah six yeah uh
1: all right marshmallow this, is six okay yeah this is like yeah is, isn't marshmallow the older one And i have a better thing already no you have
0: marshmallow <laughs> okay. and n is in beta right now right yeah
1: um, and then random letter what's that about <laughs>
0: I know the yeah and and the names the food names getting old too. So this last round of story just made me smile and so I had to cover it with you. It's a foul mouth worm that takes control of Noah's favorite Uh, wireless access points, and it struck a wireless ISP in a few places, too. Uh, ISPs around the world are being attacked by self-replicating malware that can take complete control of a widely used wireless networking equipment, according to reports from customers and security researchers. San Jose, California-based Ubiquiti Networks confirmed on Friday that attackers are actively targeting a flaw in AirOS, the Linux-based firmware that runs the wireless routers, their access points, and other gear sold by the company. The vulnerability, which allows attackers to gain access to the device over HTTP and HTTPS connections without authenticating was patched last July, but the fix wasn't widely installed, and many customers claim they never received notification of the threat. Now, there's all these different reports coming in, and here's a couple of the funny things. Uh, The bug is a result of an upload vulnerability in the Web Administrator interface that allows one of the worm variants to replace the existing password file with one that contains the username mother, and the password of... Mm-hmm. F word, <laughs> which is great, uh, and the uh, it then goes around and looks for other outdated firmware devices and then infects them. The one way you can quickly see if your Ubiquiti router or access point has been compromised is by SSHing into it with the username "mother" and the password of "effer."
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. You know <laughs> how many of these firmwares are they going to make that have these oh you can do this thing without being logged in yeah and and how Happens many people are not going to install Isn't the fix th- that's supposed to be the point of the ubiquities that they're not supposed to have that kind of thing i thought
0: ubiquity routers or ap's were centrally managed too and you would install you would install the firmware centrally wouldn't you
1: i, I don't know how that works exactly well, it would but go on each device but yeah i imagine maybe that's why it's because the central management console needs to be able to just replace the firmware remotely yeah yeah, maybe that's a you risky kind of business. need an authentication system for that. Yeah. It's you know, <laughs> a kind of enrollment, and you accept your certificate. And- yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. If you'd like to submit a story to our roundup, techsnap.reddit.com. But really, why don't you join us live next week and get yourself the double snap experience. Holy smokes. The double snap experience is like nothing else. Join us live, jblive.tv, 11 a.m. Pacific, which is? Um, I don't know. Yeah.
1: We <laughs> said <it laughs> earlier, you but I forgot. Uh, you want to broadcasting.com no, no. slash calendar. The early one will be two o'clock Eastern, which is eighteen hundred UTC.
0: Is that right? Two o'clock? No, no, not two o'clock Eastern. We're starting at eleven AM JB time. Yeah, which is two o'clock Eastern at three. Oh hours.
1: yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Okay. And also, we would love your emails. I know we mentioned it earlier in the show. Uh, if, you, if you would send that in, we would love it, your feedback, your questions, your difficult questions, uh, questions you think maybe are too easy. We like helping people get started too. You can send them there. just go to the contact page @broadcasting.com/contact. All right everyone. Oh, I should mention too, if you're a patron, from time to time we're posting the, the full TechSnap, TechSnap, the full TechSnap live experience on the Patreon page. So if you want to support the network, you can get that too. I don't know about next week. Maybe. It's going to be a big one if we do. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.